Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. First and foremost, I hope your families today are safe, you're healthy, and you're happy. I know there's a lot that continues to go on, um, and it's really um, an opportunity for all of us to be very resilient, um, take care of ourselves, and in doing so, I think we can really take best care of those around us. Uh, before I get to my great guests uh, and callers today, I did want to start out on an article that I found very inspiring and wanted to share it with you. It's written by a gentleman, Benjamin Hardy, that I don't know, um, on the medium.com um, site, and it was about Kobe Bryant's two psychological keys to success. Um, and I was, I don't know a lot about Kobe. I'm um, in awe of what he's accomplished and uh, very tragic about his passing. Um, but I didn't realize when he was 11, he actually was started playing basketball and was horrible. And this article went on to say that at one point he really um, wasn't playing as well. And his dad just said to him, you know, I love you regardless. And with that, he had real safety. He had safety to fail. And he did just that. He really, he failed over and he failed over and over. Um, and between those failures were a lot of successes. And from those successes, Kobe built his confidence and his creativity. Uh, the second thing beyond this family support is he did have a very stable home life, got married early. And so his ability to have relational uh, and emotional support gave him a lot of internal and external stability um, to go big on the court, to go big on his dreams. And what was really um, landed for me was his ability to really go for the long game. He was playing um, to win big over time, not the short game that I think um, is easy for us uh, to fall trapped to. And then a big part of this article was his short memory. And they went on a little bit on some psychology. Uh, there's something called a refractory period. It's a time to emotionally recover and move on from an experience. Um, and when you are psychologically flexible, is the term, it enables you to shorten the length of these refractory periods, um, meaning you're in touch with your emotions, but you're not completely absorbed by them. And a lot of Say It Skillfully is around being aware of your emotional state, but being able to let go of it and take on a state that really does serve you. You're able to hold your thoughts and emotions loosely um, and then pursue the conversation, in this case with Kobe, his, his meaningful goals. Uh, so just share that as a, um, a bit of an inspiration for me and hope you find that uh, of use as you go forward with your week. Uh, with that, uh, wow, today's show, um, I really could not be more charged up today. Joining me is my friend Ashish Advani who led not one, but two technology companies that he sold, and he now serves as president and CEO of Junior Achievement Worldwide. It's one of the largest NGOs that prepares youth, K through 12, and even through college in some cases, for employment and entrepreneurship. Ashish, I'm honored to have you on the show today. It's fantastic to have you join us. Um, and you know, I consider one of the greatest acts of generosity is for folks to actually share of themselves. So I appreciate your giving us a chance to get to know you a bit. Uh, you were born in what was then Bombay, um, flew to Toronto at age six, really nurturing parents, great education. Uh, we'll fast forward to this point where it might very well seem to outsiders that your journey in life was picture perfect. And we know that no lives are, um, and I'd be grateful if you'd share with us perhaps some early uh, defining moments or struggles um, that helped you become who you are today. Sure, I'm happy to share. And, you know, I, I don't think anyone's life is picture perfect, but I will say that I've certainly had a lot of luck along the way, uh, at least relative to some other young people I interact with now, where I, I sort of watch the challenges they have, particularly during this crisis, and I recognize how lucky I've been. Um, but the challenges which I faced um, included, you know, being a new immigrant, um, moving from India to Canada when I was younger and then to the U.S., um, just sort of fitting in, I would say, is um, a common challenge to lots of people who are new to different environments. 
In my case, I also had a speech impediment, so I had a pretty severe stutter as a kid, and that it didn't help me fit in, put it that way. Um, and I also had uh, a sibling who was really hardworking and successful, and I was about three and a half years younger, and I kept sort of comparing myself to um, you know, all of his accomplishments, and it was challenging as a kid to just sort of r- realize that um, I, I really had to work hard to achieve even half of what he'd achieved. <laughs> um, that was, I, I remember the emotional feelings around that of being a younger sibling and sort of trying to measure up. Um, um, but I had really nurturing parents and, you know, while we weren't rich, we certainly had, um, sort of basic comforts and I feel very lucky to have the child that I had. Um, but, um, so hopefully that gives you a sense of, of at least some challenges along the way, but certainly not as material as what I'm seeing today for a lot of young people. I appreciate your perspective. And I think a lot of us are able, I think at this moment to be very grateful for the richness that we have in a lot of our lives, um, with how articulate you are and fabulous speaker you are that you started with a speech impediment um, is remarkable. And I also hope it's very inspiring to listeners to know that you never know, you know, when you overcome things, um, you know, what was there and and, and that you could be who you are today. Um, It's a very exciting story. Your your early entrepreneurial roots really did start with junior achievement, um, but then you started your own company. So take us through a, a little bit of that journey. Sure. Well, I think, you know, when you're in, in junior high school, middle school, and then in high school, you tend to get involved in lots of student clubs and student activities. And uh, people underestimate how important those early experiences are because they really end up being uh, determinants of how you self-define what you're good at and what you're not good at. So one of the experiences I had was participating in junior achievement where I got to build a business while I was in, in my case, junior high school. Uh, in Toronto, Canada. Um, it's a program that we still run all over the world called JA Company Program, where kids have a chance to work with a team to create a business, a real business, not just a PowerPoint side loop with a vision, but a real business where they develop a product, and they sell it, and they make money, and they have, have people with a title of CEO or head of marketing or head of production. And that early experience for me was one of many that got me thinking of myself as an entrepreneur. Uh, I also had experiences, for example, with Rotary, uh, Rotary Youth Leadership Experience. Um, uh, so, Ryla, it's called Rotary Youth Leadership Award. And it was a really impactful experience because it, it made me self-define myself as a leader, uh, which I really hadn't until that moment. And um, it's pretty powerful when you graduate high school and you think of yourself as an entrepreneur and as a leader. It gives you the confidence to want to be able to start a business when you're in your 20s. Or I guess put differently, if you haven't had experiences like that, your chance of thinking of yourself as an entrepreneur and leader is sort of harder. <laughs> so um, I, in, in my late 20s, I launched my first business. Um, I can tell you more about it, but in general, it was really um, uh, an online business. And it, and I ran it for just over seven years, and it was acquired. Um, so it was a good first experience, but definitely came after a lot of ups and downs along the way. Well, I'm going to push you a little because it's like, oh, I started this business. And so that's not an easy thing. So first I'm hearing this personal epiphany, like, wow, I, a sheesh, high school student, I can look at myself as an entrepreneur, right? So clearly that was a big aha moment that you could do this. And so just share a bit, like, what did you see in the online? I mean, that was early days. You know, just take us through how you, you know, oh, seven years I sold the company. I think there's something else going on in there. (laughs) Yeah, sure. And, and, you know, like a lot of entrepreneurs, I had some ideas which didn't work. Uh, Some of them never became companies. They were just ideas. One in particular I'll tell you about because I think people love to hear about failures more than successes. But um, this is an idea for um, a company called The Business Miner. And I did it with a friend of mine. We were studying um, at a business school undergraduate. And we thought, geez, all these, these kids who are studying liberal arts and engineering they would love to do a little bit of business without having to completely change their whole undergraduate education to focus only on finance or marketing. So we thought we'd create a minor, like a minor degree, a minor in business. And we'd offer it as a summer course. This was pre-internet, so this was way back. And we thought we would do a summer experience where we'd give uh, young people a chance to earn a business minor degree, sort of privately run with a bunch of professors. 
And we recruited all the professors and we got the whole thing going and we charged $5,000 for the business minor, um, which was just too much. And uh, people didn't, people weren't willing to pay. And I just, I guess I learned from that early lesson that you have to do so much research on market receptivity before you focus on the product. It's very easy to get excited about the product and get excited about the logo and the brand and the, you know, now the website, but those days, no website, um, cause that's the fun stuff. But the part which you really have to laser focus on is what the buyer preferences are and customer needs are that you're solving. So that was my experience in my mid twenties, my late twenties, a company I started was called circle lending. It was a person to person loan company, an online lending company. That was uh, one of the first, probably the pioneer, but uh, there were many along the way who certainly did slightly different things and and, uh, became very successful as well. But we were first, and we enabled individuals to loan money to other individuals um, using the Internet as a a mechanism for enforcement. And it it spread. I mean, it was quite amazing to watch um, where we found that people actually wanted to um, get loans from other individuals for things like small businesses, things like education, to refinance credit card debt, or to, as it turns out, our biggest market was to buy homes. So people would borrow money off friends and family and others for supplementing the cost of buying a home through a second mortgage or even a first mortgage. Wow. So that was the business. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the business. Now, did folks court you? Did you, as you were growing this, did you think you wanted to sell it? I'm, I'm wondering where the trajectory of getting out of the business came. Yeah, well, it's kind of a bizarre business idea, right? If you think about it, the idea of starting a business to help people online get loans from each other, at least in those days, felt very weird. Um, we succeeded in, in partnering with um, the Small Business Administration, the USSBA, and, we'd offer, and we offered a business financing toolkit for entrepreneurs because over 90% of entrepreneurs borrow money from friends and family or from other individuals to start their business. So that was the first big thing that we did, which got a lot of traction. And um, it, we were profiled in Time Magazine and NPR and PBS, and it became quite a thing. And I received a call one day from Richard Branson's deal team at Virgin. Um, you probably think of Virgin as an airline, but Virgin actually has over 200 other companies and all sorts of things from media to trains to financial services. At the time, it was the largest credit card company in Europe, of Virgin Money. Um, and, uh, to, and, they, and they called and said, hey, we're thinking of launching in the U.S. We'd love to chat about your ideas of how we do that. And over six months, we got to know each other and they made an offer to buy the company, which was quite amazing. Phenomenal. That's so awesome. Um, how would you capture your feeling from that point and then before you got into your next new thing? I'm just wondering, you know, were you like eager to jump in or you're like, I need to take a break? What was your headset like, your mindset? Well, I mean, to work for Richard Branson was just a dream for me. I mean, for any entrepreneur, he's, he's such an amazing role model. Um, and um, I was thrilled with the prospect of working for him. Um, we sold the company in 2007, so right before the financial crisis in the U.S. of 2008-2009. And um, I, so during that crisis, I find myself CEO of a financial services business in the U.S., which was <laughs> a complicated time. A great time to sell your business, a really not a great time to launch a business in the U.S. Um, so um, in the course of that restructuring, we ended up buying a bank because it didn't make sense for us to be a non-bank lender, because we were basically generated a, a lot of customers online, but banks couldn't loan the money. So we needed to actually be a bank because otherwise we couldn't control access to the credit. So we ended up, um, a virgin in the UK bought Northern Rock, which was a pretty massive bank, um, you know, over a billion dollar transaction. And uh, so everything changed overnight. And when that happened, I left and I decided that I was going to take some time to think about what I wanted to do next. I had a one-year non-compete, so I wasn't allowed to work for a year, which is a wonderful tool in, um, in, in, in business to force reflection time, which I think is really necessary when you leave a job to have a little bit of time to think about what you do next. Frankly, I think I had the luxury of doing that. I actually worry a lot about people where they don't have that time between jobs to do proper reflection. 
And um, it's sad, but the reality is people, you know, can't afford to take that time between jobs. In fact, one of the big things I worry about is we have a, um, an unemployment crisis right now in America and a job market such that people are going to have many, many jobs and many, many careers. The average young person is probably going to have at least six to seven different careers and at least 20 jobs. That's just the pace at which the world is changing. And taking time between opportunities to figure out what you want to do next is something that's so helpful, but it's also very hard to afford. Yeah, I resonate with that. And I, at one point, um, early on learned, if you work nonstop, it's great. You get a lot done and, um, you know, you, you can progress a lot and you can also burn yourself out. And so I took about a 15-month sabbatical. Um, so I hear you on that. And people looked at me like, how could you do that? And I, and I looked at them and said, how can I not do this? I literally had kind of forgotten. I didn't know who I was you know, where I was, who I wanted to be, because you can really get, you know, um, single track. Um, and I yeah. think that, that, to your point, to have a block of time is a gift, even for folks um, like getting through day by day. I mean, we've got people who are homeschooling, working, sanitizing groceries, you know, I mean, it's a lot. And to be able to take time out um, a date night, a week, an hour a week, something, you know, that you can work in now, um, I think is really important for people's emotional, uh, mental well-being. No, and and it's it has to not be looked down upon. I think you know, particularly given that you've got this wonderful platform to communicate with so many great people with the show, it's a great chance for me to say, you know, we really have to change our culture and not think of these breaks in people's careers or resumes as a negative, but as a positive. Um, and it shows that you have the resilience to have saved the money to get you through that time. That's a positive. You know, we teach financial literacy at JA, and you should always have at least six months of savings in the bank, which gives you some degree of cushion. The vast majority of people don't have that cushion, and we need to work hard to sort of advocate for the importance of savings so people have that reflection time between what's happened in the past and where they want to go. Yeah, I completely, completely echo that. And the mindset shift is really an important one. I think the first step is for people to realize that that perhaps is the thinking like, wow, you took time off. What's wrong with you? Or how come there's this gap between one job to another? You know, what could possibly have, you know, you've been doing? And that is something that we can shift. I mean, that's something one can control is to be able to look at something that might be different than in the past, you know, People used to go from job to job to job and say, you know what, um, there can be a real advantage for people taking time out. I found, I, I've done this a few times in my career, and I've always found people to, to very much embrace it. And I think a part of that was because I embraced it. So I encourage folks to, to realize people will, will tee off of your energy and how you come across. So if you come across as, well, I, I took three months off and I was with my kids versus, wow, I took three months off. It was amazing. You know, I just realized when I took my time off, Ashish, I did some junior achievement volunteering. Can you believe I just figured that out? Wow. That just came to awesome. me. Awesome. Yeah. Cause I never used to be able to do anything on a certain day. I was like, oh, every Wednesday do something. Are you kidding me? So, um, you know, this, that's, uh, that's so funny. I figured that out. So, you know, you mentioned this thing about the six to seven careers, the 20 jobs. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Um, for our adult folks out there, you know, what would you encourage them to do to better support youth um, in making their decisions? And, you know, I think of this, I mean, you're a parent um, as well as leaders in companies. I mean, I'd really welcome your thoughts on what folks can do uh, to help our support our next generation. Sure. Um, well, I'll start by saying that most teenage kids tend to not listen to their parents uh, with regards to career advice. Um, if you're a parent of teenage kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, so I, I've got twin boys and they're 15 and they stopped listening to me about a couple of years ago about you know, anything to do with careers. Um, so the key is if you want to um, support young people uh, who are not your kids, I think my advice is a little bit different. My advice would be really focus on encouraging them and saying something nice about where their career prospects might land, because that one comment that you make to a young person could actually change their life. I could tell you so many stories around JA of how one comment from an adult volunteer or mentor 
to a high school kid or, you know, teenager actually fundamentally change their self-perception and their trajectory and their interest in a particular career. So it's that connection between non-parents and kids that allows um, um, small comments to make a world of difference in helping young people think differently about themselves. Wow. That's, uh, I'm an adoring aunt and I can appreciate um, your situation with your twins. And, um, um, and I have seen the, the plus side of what you're saying. And I have seen the downside, you know, when you see um, young people who've been told they can't uh, or they won't. Um, so, so empowering. Um, even, even one statement can really change a life. No, I, and um you know, more recently at JA, I, I, I just received actually a few weeks ago an email from somebody who happened to be in a workshop I did. Um, and uh, and she came up to me afterwards and she said, hey, I'm thinking of applying to this university. What do you think? And I said, absolutely. You should definitely apply. I mean, you, I can see that your eyes light up when you talk about it. You clearly love it. And, um, and then she applied and she got in and she sent me this really wonderful note saying that it was because of that response that she felt encouraged. And like that's all I did. It, it didn't cost anything. It was just like two or three sentences to a young person, and it made such a big difference. It's just so amazing. If you think of all the young people in the world, if they all had just one person who believed in them, what a different world we'd have. Yeah, yeah. And that's to empower every person listening here that there are at least one, not many more that you can support. And uh, we encourage you to do that because that's the gift that keeps on giving. Um, so, J.A., will you uh, share with us? I mean, we could talk on and on. And I, I do want to hear one thing, though, about where you started and then selling these companies and now being at J.A. for you as a leader. She should share a little bit about what that means for you. Well, it's, I mean, it's an incredible opportunity to help an organization that helped me. And it's such an amazing organization. I mean, JA has national leaders and provincial leaders and state leaders all over the world. So we have well over um, 300 different JA entities spread over 118 countries. And all of these individuals effectively are motivated to help young people accomplish their dreams and to prepare them for the future of work. So... So if you can imagine an organization which just has a network of teams, each team in every, let's say, state or country is between five people and, say, 50 people. And um, this, this network of young, of, 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 of JA staff, um, kind of benefits from having volunteers from companies, volunteers who are entrepreneurs or volunteers or even social entrepreneurs come back and tell their story to kids in school and to motivate kids and inspire them. And it's happening all over the world. So even in places like Saudi Arabia and Russia and China and India, where, you know, young people typically don't have access to role models, JA has brought our way of um, inspiring kids, talking about you know, entrepreneurship and business and how that can be a force for good. Um, and really, I think we've had a chance to transform some economies, uh, particularly in Eastern Europe, where we were the first nonprofit to teach entrepreneurship after the Berlin Wall came down. And you've just seen the transformation of societies there. Um, and Jay has played a pretty significant role. So for me to be part of an organization that allows the impact of entrepreneurship to change societies and communities is just an amazing opportunity. Oh, it's so fabulous. So what can listeners do? What can we do to support the organization? Well, you know, like a lot of um, other organizations at this time, um, you know, the crisis has made a pretty significant impact on JA. Um, we um, were funded by, by philanthropy, so, you know, small donations and, and corporate donations and other types of um, philanthropy. And it's really been challenged at this time where people, you know, haven't been as focused because, of course, they've had a difficult time themselves through the crisis on, on, on being able to be generous with with their nonprofit giving. Um, as it turns out, today is actually Giving Tuesday now, I believe it's called, which is, um, uh, which is sort of a, I guess, a rejuvenation to support nonprofits during this crisis. So I guess the first way that readers could help is even a small donation would make a pretty big impact. But even if you can't give money, I think giving of your time is equally important to JA because we're powered by volunteers. We have 470,000 plus 
of volunteers per year who help deliver our programs all over the world. We're one of the largest volunteer organizations in the world. So if you can't give money or if you can give money, but you can also give time, please raise your hand and get involved with JA. It sounds like you have some experience with that as well. Um, uh, it's, I will tell you, the idea of volunteering to help a youth-serving organization is so personally fulfilling. Volunteers always tell us, almost always, that they get as much out of their interaction with us as the kids do. Um, uh, we've got some common friends, Molly, um, who still remember JA so much that they came back and said, JA changed my life, and they were a volunteer. They weren't... <laughs> They weren't a high school kid or a college kid who went through the program. So, um, so I think those are the two ways to get involved. One is to you know, make a small donation if you can, and the second is to volunteer your time. Fantastic. I'll include that in my follow-up. Now, I'd be remiss if I let you off the hook here. So here's your chance, Ashish. What Say It Skillfully uh, question or challenge do you have for me? So um, um, I'll tell you about a, a situation where I, I did not say it skillfully. <laughs> and you tell me maybe how I sh- how I should have done it. Is that is that the right way that'd to do be, this? That'd be great. That'd be great. Okay. So this was when I first joined the organization uh, in my first year at JA, and uh, I just spent basically a whole year getting a strategic plan approved by uh, you know every one of our boards all over the world, including our global board and including all of the leaders, kind of all over the world. So I've been traveling around, getting everyone to agree to things like being aligned to the UN Global Goals, things like being aligned to a digital transformation, a new definition of how we focus on impact, et cetera, et cetera. It was a pretty big effort. And I brought it to the headquarters team who works for me. Um, and I presented it to them as a, a strategy that was already you know, fully approved by the board and everyone else. And, and I realized they just hadn't felt heard in the process. I'd spent so much time hearing the feedback of all of the teams around the world that I had really not focused as much on the team um, at the headquarters level. Um, and um, at, at one point, one of them said, yeah, you know, I don't support this. I don't support this element of the strategy. And I said, well, you know, I totally get if you don't afford it, it, it if you don't support it. But, you know, this is what's already been approved. This is what we're doing. Um, if you'd like to leave, you know, there's the door, feel free to leave. And, and, and I totally get it. I mean, there's some great opportunities you can, you can take elsewhere, which allow you to support a strategy you, you can get behind. <laughs> I think it was such a shock to the system for, for that to be said. I said it as politely as I could, but still it was a pretty rude comment to be blunt. And, um, I got lots of flack afterwards for saying it and it totally changed the, I think the relationship and discourse for, uh, for a solid month after that. Um, and then as I reflect on it now, I, I could have said that um, in a much more thoughtful way about the importance of different stakeholders and, and how, um, how difficult it is to get a strategy adopted and to sort of broadcast empathy as opposed to broadcast take it or leave it. So that's my story. <laughs> well, I, I hear the learning. I got it. It's great. It's when everyone to know, even Ashish can do a boo-boo here and there. So we're all human. So just two thoughts for, for listeners. When you've gone into something, and, and this is like, I get it. This is like un- monumental that you've gotten approval. And it may be just before you go into a meeting, you realize, you know what? I haven't included these folks. And that would be a great thing to own at the beginning, which is to share how this all happened so that they could feel like it's what, what it's like to be in your shoes. And at the same time to honor the fact that, you know, it's just dawning on me and it's really my bad. So this is all new to you. I haven't done my job to loop you in. So just own that, right? Because right then and there, it's just out in the open. Um, and then in the moment, okay, when the person says something, it is about that, acknowledging, I'm, I hear you, thank you for chiming in because it's hard to disagree with the boss for all the bosses out there, very hard. Um, and then it might be something as say a little bit more to give yourself a chance to realize like I really can't believe that this guy is not going with me and then to, to have that person be able to share and to feel a bit more heard. And so those kind of strategies right in the moment when the kind of the wrong thing could take you down one trajectory, a simple antidote is just, oh, thank you for sharing that, say more right? In a neutral kind of tone. How's that land? Oh, Molly, I need you as an advisor. Molly, please join <laughs> our organization and advise me before I open my mouth. <laughs> I can totally use your advice. That's awesome. That's exactly right. 
<laughs> well, um, I'm peaked to, to follow up with you because I think it would be spectacular to uh, support that journey that you're on. So I will follow up with you. Um, for now, you've been, again, I know you have thousands of things to do. I'm grateful for your spending time with us, for sharing um, your past and always, Ashish, uh, for being part of the solution. Great. It was, it was such a pleasure. Thank you, Molly. Take care. See you soon. Okay, um, to follow that up, if you can believe it, um, named by Britain's daily newspaper, The Times, the smartest and most powerful teenager on the planet and digital leader of the year, and one of UK's most exciting entrepreneurs, as quoted by Richard Branson, I am thrilled to uh, introduce Ben Towers, um, one of the most influential entrepreneurs on the planet, only 21 years old. Um, he has a junior achievement past as well. Uh, ben, welcome to the show. Hello, how are you? Could not be more fabulous. I am so grateful Brilliant. for you joining too. Oh, thank you. I'm really enjoying it. And I enjoy listening to Ashish as well and um, talk about his stuff. I think um, I'm really fortunate to work alongside him and uh, junior achievement to help more young people and you know, the work they are doing is really exciting yes for sure as is the work that you're doing and I, we're going to have Ben back so folks don't worry I'm not going to go into his background but I will tell you that he started his first business at age 11 and did exit his marketing agency um, and he's um, an investor he's a speaker uh, he's an ambassador for the social sector and um He's on a mission to change the health outcomes of his generation. So we're going to come back and unpack that fully. Um, I did want to pick back up with where Ashish left off um, and that, you know, the opportunity for youth to help adults understand their world, for adults to understand youth so that we can work better together. You know, we talked a little bit before the call here. So share some thoughts um, about how we might get better understanding, say it more skillfully across generations? Yeah, definitely. So for me, cross-generational learning and teams are so important. So when I look back under my previous company, which was the marketing agency, so you mentioned that when I was 18. Now with that, you know, we got to a size of 26 staff doing some very big social marketing campaigns for you know, some large brands. And my right-hand man in the company, the person who was literally the guy who was supporting me growing that, with me being late teenager, early 20s, um, he was then 60. So in a sense, between us, we covered the whole working sort of age or population. And I think some people would look to that and thought that's a strange dynamic. You know, is that a right sort of process? You know, such a difference in age, depth, very difference in thinking. But I actually think the work we did for clients and the business we started to grow was really quite special because you had my views, which were, in some cases, naive, but I think that naturally, sometimes naive views can be very good to turn into innovation. So I had that views of, you know, um, not necessarily the real-world experience, but the practical of saying, well, why can't we just do that? And then I had his experience of going, well, when things have tried to be done like that before, here are the challenges and the problems and so on. And then we combined that together. We were creating some you know, phenomenal campaigns. So I think, for me, it's something really to try to encourage. And so often, I think people try to you know, get their sharpie out and draw a line in between generations and go, no, that's the young, that's the more experienced, this is it, and try and sort of split it. But I think actually what we need to try to do is have the mindset of, you know, it's just like different genders and so on. You know, we need to have all people mixed together and that's how you start to create something quite special. Where have you encountered, I'm curious, because, you know, again, you're a pioneer in a big way. And when when you've encountered, maybe you can think back to an adult or anyone for that matter, not resonating with you because of your age, right? Um, can you think back how you earned the trust, um, worked your way in, you know, I think it would be really helpful for listeners to understand some of the specific situations and ways that you may have gotten people to be more open to you. Sure. So there's loads of market lists, but to give you a few of the, uh, more interesting or prominent ones obviously naturally there is the the fear that why should a company trust me you know, being the face of this business running this business to do their marketing or website campaigns when you know they're paying us a bit of money up front there's a contract of work done over a month or two periods you know it is quite a risky process from that point from logistical 
end. It's not just like I'm going to you, I'm buying a sandwich and leaving, where you know, if, if it's not very nice, you've taken a minimal hit. So I had to find ways to overcome that because I was countlessly experiencing prejudice from people where they would say things like, oh, are you the apprentice? Or, um, oh, do you work in the company? Where's the boss? Or you know, these sorts of comments were becoming quite common. So I had to find, find a way around that. So my way around that was that building a very strong portfolio of clients that we didn't work for. And they, they, some of them were completely free. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that we were charging for all of our first clients at all, but just to build it up to then alleviate that when they go, oh, why should I trust a young person? Or I can go, well, here's 10, 15, 20 other websites we've built recently. That are, that are some of the real companies, some of the fake companies just invented just to do the website for, but they can showcase our skills. And so that was one thing. Second thing that's obviously then naturally quite interesting is trying to convince the bigger decision makers and trying to get in front of them. Can I think being young can be positive because you can also get in front of them with a different angle and perspective, which often they want to hear. But you also get the other side of it of you know, why, why should I waste my time on this? And so I then built out a very strong network of advisors who are just people who are not related to my business whatsoever, so you know, they're not vested in the business success, but they're just invested in me and they, they like me and they want to support the journey that I'm on. And I think anyone could do that at any age of have people around them who can be like their shields and protectors and so on. But what it meant was if I was trying to get to this big client and I just needed someone to give them a little nudge, then chances are one of my advisors might know them or um, maybe they can put in a word or be, be in one of the meetings to help that. And now I think it's not always nice to think you have to have that. Where you, you, know, you have to bring somebody else in the meeting to give it a nudge. But I, I had to look at the situation which was there and go, okay, so what can be done to overcome this? I love the resourcefulness. And what I'm sensing, Ben, also is um, it's very easy to react um, when people think you're the apprentice, you know, and get very ruffled. And that's not yeah. going to be useful. And so help us, uh, you know, at your young age, how did you get a good sense, a good dose of, I would say, self-assuredness, uh, self-confidence, and, and to be able to stay that calm? You know, I mean, I think that's a real gift. Yeah, I'd say um, my parents have been fantastic in my business journey. So neither of them are entrepreneurs, so they could never tell me, how to win a client or how to manage my accounts or anything like that. The whole entrepreneurship space is quite scared of them. But what they could do is just fill me with confidence and support and keep, you know, when I go home after, not go home, when I come home after a bad day and I feel really down, they would then boom me up and go, no, no, you've got this, you can do it. And just constantly be in that positivity in your life, which I think so often people miss. You know, life as an entrepreneur is very lonely. Is is one of the loneliest jobs you can do. So to have people around you just always give that positivity is important. And I think that then gave me the confidence to be able to go out and create this business because I had people around me who could push me, challenge me, go, oh, why could you not go next Y or Z? Or what about this? Just constantly push me in that way and help grow my confidence. And another big thing I'd say that helped grow my confidence a lot was speaking at conferences. And I think you know, personal branding is something a lot of people talk about it's like a buzzword. We all think about it to some extent. And for me, I really use my personal brand as a way to help me grow the business. And so by speaking at conferences, I learned as I went along. I didn't go on any public speaking courses, but I just said to myself, well, let's give it a go. And I got given the opportunity by a company in London and started to do that. But by doing that over time, I then met a lot more people who could also support me, but also potential customers and so on. So I grow my personal plan that helped me a lot and also gave me confidence. That's fantastic. I uh, want to segue for our listeners. I often tell folks that I work with, um, and, and people are often a bit like, oh, I can't believe so-and-so thinks such-and-such of me. And, and, and then you know this, people don't just make up stuff about you. Something about how you move through space, what you said, what you did, telegraph something, and it may not have been what you intended or something that you want. And so I've always said to people, yeah. when you go into a meeting or um, you're on a call, and the minute that call ends or you leave the room, the question you want to ask yourself is, what are the three words, right, or three phrases that you would want those folks to think of you? And people are like, what? I said, yeah, even in a meeting, right, if you, if you could, because that requires the forethought, the intention to think, how do I want to come across? So not just in my words, um, and my actions, but also the energy, right? How you how you show up, 
And I would encourage all listeners, um, you know, whether you're preparing for a big speech or really just you're, a meeting you're going to, that um, every interaction someone has with you is how they kind of form their sense of you. And if you want it to be a certain way, you need to be intentional about it. So I'll segue yeah. with that question in mind, Ben. If you were to think of maybe top three, right, um, branding words or phrases about yourself, um, what would those three be? Cool, about myself, go back to it. Um, I think one thing that I've always tried to be is transparent. And yeah, if I'm having a bad day and I'm talking at a conference, I'll actually say at that conference, you know, I'm having a bit of a bad day today and here's why. And I think it's so important to open up that transparency, both from an entrepreneur point of view, but also for your mental health and so on. So yeah, transparency would be one thing I'd say. Another thing that I know that I always try to push is around always pushing that creativity and ideas and that's another thing that I always want to not only be seen but also know that it's something that I'm very passionate about is always thinking about new ideas and ways of achieving things and then the last thing so being young you've got to always show that you have got the confidence or the skills to be able to achieve what you're talking about you know I could easily just walk into a room and tell them I'm the best thing since sliced bread but until you actually prove it or you actually give them that confidence it's never going to work so that then became a really important part for me as well is to make sure that I reassure people when talking to them that I haven't just got ideas that actually can deliver on what I'm talking about. Yeah, make it happen. So uh, share with us, you know, you're, you're fantastic. You know, I'm a big fan of yours. Uh, share some of the, the failures, the things that didn't go well, what you learned from them. Um, again, it's easy to kind of stand back and say, well, wonder, wonder kids, all fabulous. People just opened up their doors. They just embraced them warmly. Um, I imagine there's a few war stories in your, even in your youth here. Yeah, I mean, a um, good example is leadership. Because I've never worked for somebody at an attitude. I've done consultancy and support in that sense, but never actually been employed by anybody. And so when I'm then, so from the age of 15, starting to lead a team, that is a very interesting dynamic when I've never had a leader ever tell me what to do. You know, my only example of a leader was my teachers in school and so on. So naturally, I went through a lot of challenges with that. I um, started micromanaging at one point. I was um, too controlling and not controlling enough. And I, was, and, yeah, it, I think there was a few things partly about my skills like leadership, but also around this was my baby and I wanted to make sure it was done right. Um, so I then had to do a lot of learning myself and start to really develop my leadership skills and make it a big focus of mine. So that was a big thing. I definitely made mistakes. That definitely, um, I would say, I lost a few staff early days because of that. But over time, um, I'd like to say that the position I'm at now is the position where I've got a team who believe in that and can support that and also appreciate how I work. And I think I've managed to build my leadership style that, it's where I want to be and don't get me wrong it's not perfect but it's still something I want to develop yeah I think most people Ashish included would tell you that boy it's a lifelong journey so we're always learning about ourselves and therefore learning how to lead um, others in a big way um, I'm curious because one of the key attributes for the great leaders that I know is they are really able um, to bring out the bad news people feel um that it's their responsibility and they're forthright about telling the boss, if you will, the bad news. Um, do you, how do you, how would you rate yourself on a scale of one to 10 about how, to what degree you welcome the bad news? I'll ask you that question first. 10 is like, ah, everyone jumps right away, tells me the bad news straight away. No holds bar. Um, I, I, I hard to give a scale of like one to 10. I'd say for me, I, I always, I always want to know that. And I've always instilled that is what I want to know first. Give me the, give me the bad stuff and then we can innovate from that. Um, for me, I always want to know when I'm making decisions and when we're growing as a team, where are we currently? What's happened? And how can we innovate to change that? So that's a big, big focus of mine that obviously I, I want to make sure. So give a number, quite be hard to, to think what number could be. But I think for me, it, 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 it's something essential. I always make sure people I'm working with tell me Great. So that would be a great thing to checkpoint on. And I think a lot of folks that I've worked with, leaders, 
um, which I'm not saying for you because I haven't observed you, will think that they've made it very clear that they want to hear the bad news first. Um, And so in the leader's mind, they're like, oh, yeah, I don't really want to hear it. And then what happens over time is the disconnect that people, they may even intellectually know the leader wants to know, but they're not, this gets to the say it skillfully, not necessarily going to raise their hand and say it as fast as, as they would maybe the leader would want them to. And so that is often a thing I uh, find for the greatest leaders are very much about embracing the, like, what don't I want to hear? I mean, I even remember hearing the vice chairman of GE hear the first question out of her mouth. People would be like, hi, what, tell me what you, do, what you think I don't want to hear. She's like, I don't want to hear anything else first. I want to hear that first. Um, so I thought that yeah. was a, a brilliant way to encourage folks to realize, and to your point, you know, that's the opportunity to then solve for the problems um, and to innovate from. But you also say um, on that, it's about how you react to it. And that's a really important part is because if you react to it negatively and start playing the blame game, then that's going to not allow it to happen in the future. Whereas for me, I wasn't to react to it. Okay, that's good. Now let's now innovate and let's find a way around it. And I think if your mindset is always, okay, that's bad, but what's the positive? How can we change from this? Then it makes it an easier culture. But when you make the culture... All right, who caused that? How can you know what needs to be done to fix it in the future and so on? But it becomes a harder environment to open up that those sorts of things. Yep, huge call out. It's a huge uh, opportunity, I think, for all listeners on both sides, um, with your uh, leader or your uh, part of a team, to create the kind of opening. Um, and embracing of the stuff that may not be the easiest to hear. Uh, so we could talk for a long time. Let's segue, because I always like to, to ask my callers the um, say it skillfully challenge that you might have. It's a tough situation or conversation, you know, past or present. could be personal, could be work. What's on your mind? Yeah, so I say a thing that to me really trying to work on and trying to develop at the moment is around when it comes to, I think I've always been living the same thing over and over again. You know, I think your life as an entrepreneur is you're, you're like a performer. You're like somebody who's ever, you're always telling your story, always telling what you're happening, how things are, how people get on board and so on. So for me, the struggle of something I'm really, really trying to work around now is, okay, how can I say it in a streamlined way without skipping things, but also whilst keeping it excited and engaging? Because I think that's always something that you always have to be developing and growing with. Okay, my microphone cut out a little bit. Would you repeat me? Repeat for me, please. What was the the essence of that? Sure. So it's around the life as an entrepreneur. In a sense, you're a performer. So you spend your life, you know, performing. How's your business? Tell people how it's going. How can you get them on board? How can you grow things? How can you create the leadership? And so the, the key thing I think for me at this time is trying to perfect that, trying to fine tune that, trying to work out what is the best ways of maintaining that to keep it vibrant and healthy yeah so you're talking about just you staying at a peak performance level um, so myself and then also then how you always conveying conveying talk about what you do because I think you can easily get lost um, in talking about something that's on your mind and forgetting that people you're talking to don't know what's on your mind they don't even know about the whole thing it's about taking that step oh. back and trying to explain them your business but from that overall point of view not from a Specific Got, it. Focus. Got it. So how do you, when, given a particular audience, how as an entrepreneur yeah. are you, you know, crisp about the who you yeah. are? Yeah. So the great challenge. I think this is a bit of the roadshow, but I do think it's the intention before you go anywhere of, of just sitting back and saying, who am I talking to? And like, what do they need to know? Not, do, not what do I want to say? Or what do I want to brag about? But what do they need to know? And less is more is hard. And so it is about like three things. It's not six, it's three. And in terms of just a structure to sit back, what is it that they need to know? And it's, you know, what, what am I talking about? Why does it matter? What's in it for them? Those three things tend to be things if you kind of play around in the order can help you engage and relate and once you relate with people, you then have a chance to influence and then potentially lead, quoting my friend Harry Kramer. Does that make sense? How's that land for you? Yeah, definitely does. Yeah, it simplifies it a bit. And you are, you know, you got a lot going on in your brain. So your ability, and we talked a little bit about this, the exhale, the meditation, the deep breathing, just kind of getting zen so that 
when you show up in front of someone that they feel that you're kind of in their shoes, right? You're, you're, you're thinking from what I understand about where you're coming from, when you start sentences like that, it's, it starts to show an empathy for the other and that right in there, yeah. you know, it changes the dynamic. So we will be back in touch. You are a gift, an inspiration. I am um, grateful for your time, Ben. And, um, you know how to reach me. If I can be of help, we'll be in touch. That um, I just thank you for joining me and, and for being part of the solution. Oh, brilliant. Thank you for having me. You take good care. Wow. I don't know that I could be more inspired. I uh, hope that folks found that um, a breath of fresh air. Uh, again, I know we're going through a lot. Know that I'm cheering for you and I'm here for you. Um, I do want to leave with... Um, Words for the, my, my thought for the week and inspired by my friend Bruce Kazanoff. And he wrote a post on LinkedIn and it was, be relentlessly positive for a week. Just try it on for a week. And for those folks who, um, when they hear that, might think it's um, unicorns and rainbows or um, overly optimistic. We're not encouraging that. But the ability to see the, see the bright side, see the positive side, I call it be the light. Um, absolutely, there's stuff that's tough out there. Um, it's, a, it's really tough for some folks, and it's, um, we want to be empathetic, and we want to do what we can um, and show compassion. Uh, at the same time, um, it can be really helpful inside to just generate a sense of positivity. My own personal experience is I, I wake, out of, wake up in bed and I'm happy. You know, I may not be satisfied with the state of the world, but I know that I can control what's within me and offer folks uh, an opportunity perhaps each day to say, look, can I be relentlessly positive? See the bright side um, and see how that works for you. Okay, so we'll wrap. I really appreciate you uh, tuning in. Please be part of the solution. Kindly share the show. Uh, Reflect on your top takeaways. And no, I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 